Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which is a friendly and inclusive community. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. Welcome back from our break. This week, I'm talking to Marina Phillips. Marina is the breeding director for the Assistance Dogs International Breeding Cooperative. A breeding cooperative is a group of breeders with similar goals who exchange animals to form a larger breeding population than they could on their own. So in this episode, Marina gets down and dirty with the details of how to put together and run a breeding cooperative and wraps up with some insights on how she makes guardian homes work for her, where a guardian home is when you place dogs in pet homes but you keep breeding rights. So if you're a breeder who's ever struggled with how to keep enough potential breeding dogs in a house with limited space... This episode may be for you. So thank you, Marina, so much for coming on to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you. So my first question is always the super, super hard one of why don't you tell us a little bit about your own dogs and what you do with them and what kinds of dogs they are. Oh my God, I would love to. I think that's so kind that you asked that question. I've listened to the podcasts, which I really enjoyed. And I just, oh, I just think it's... It, it's very pleasant because, of course, people um, are in this type of work because they love dogs and adore their own dogs. Um, so I have right now a female household, a really nice, harmonious household of three females. And my oldest is... Are little... you being sarcastic or is it actually harmonious? Oh, God, no. It's very harmonious. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, it's awesome. Yes. <laughs> that's lovely. Sorry, I'm just thinking about the girl dog politics that I've seen before, and I couldn't tell if you were like, it's all girls, it's horrible. You know, I know this probably isn't um, modern, but I am definitely the, there is no doubt who's in charge in my house. I'll just put it that way. So maybe (laughs) I never see politics because there's no room for them. Um, So I, I have an old dog. Her name is Biko, and she's a Dachshund Papillon Shih Tzu mix. And she's a little hairy dog. And she, I got her for my daughters because when I was working full-time in the guide and service industry, I was bringing home a lot of dogs, either training dogs or breeding dogs. So we often had big dogs coming and going and they had rules and training parameters. And so I wanted to get a little dog for my daughters who could be their little cuddle dog, could be up on their beds, et cetera. So I got a little puppy from a coworker and uh, that's our little Biko. And then I have a 10-year-old dog, a 10-year-old golden named Tassel. And she's a really good sport, really sporting dog. And I got her uh, via connection from one of my mentors from New Zealand. And I also just recently imported some semen from her father. So I'm really stoked about that. Uh, and then I have a youngster, another golden named Rue. And... Um, She's kind of interesting because you know how like through your life you you meet and you work with a lot of good dogs and then occasionally you meet and work with a great dog and she's a great dog. Like she's great. She's like having um, 
She's like living with Lassie. She's just, she's responsible. She's intuitive. She's game. She is just super connected and um, really fun. And I also got her via connection um, with a mentor from Career Dogs Australia. And I feel really stoked about that because when I used to travel a lot in the guide dog industry, the dogs who I was the most impressed with uh, were those in the UK. And um, she comes carrying that lineage from those dogs that I met back in the day and fell in love with. So that's uh, what's hanging out here. Is she going to be the recipient of the imported semen? Whoa, that's a loaded question. So, oh, sorry, I thought it I was would... something that you had. <laughs> I thought it was something that was clearly planned, and you were just going to be like, "Uh huh, it's great." <laughs> well, I would love that, um, and that's something that's kind of interesting um, in relation to some of the other podcasts that I've listened to uh, with your group. Is that my youngest Rue is not kennel club registered? So where does that leave me as a private individual? Certainly within the assistance dog field, um, that's not a problem at all. Most of the dogs, um, the vast majority are not kennel club registered. But as a private breeder, you know, I need to be able to place puppies to recoup my costs. So that's still up in the air because the New Zealand semen is registered. um, But my girl, Rue, who comes from the long guide dog lineage, is not registered. Um, We'll see. That will be interesting. Um, and I and the last question I have about your household is, is it the tiny dog who's in charge? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Has been since yes. day one. Yes. Totally. I've never yeah, my, known. Uh, Go ahead. I would say my smallest is also my only female is totally in charge. 100%. Totally. You know, really by the size virtue, I think they have to be um, yeah. because they can get injured. You know, Shani weighs 11 pounds. And so she's very sharp to train the puppies that she teaches them right off that she has an 18 to 20 inch (laughs) bubble around her. And if when they cross that bubble, they hear about it. And it's so cute to see, like she'll be laying on her bed in the corner and puppies will be running around kind of getting goofy and wiggly and they'll go running up past her and then they'll just like (laughs) skid and put on their brakes. Oh my God, I'm too close. I'm too close. So That's yes, adorable. Yeah, and I've never known a Papillon, um, so I can't really say that's what her father was. Um, but I would certainly say that the dachshund in her mix is um, part of what's keeping everything in charge. Yes, yes, there have been uh, various studies about the um, strong personalities of dachshunds. Mm-hmm. All the ones I've known, uh, yes, yes, I would agree. <laughs> Yeah, when I was in veterinary school, we were terrified of them. The, the only, the only really, the only really, uh, the only bite that drew blood that I actually saw in clinics was delivered by a dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So then, of course, the reason I asked you here, uh, and we are going to talk about your lovely dogs as well. But what wanted had me, the reason I wanted to bring you on was to talk about the ABC. Yep. Uh, so that is the ADI Breeding Cooperative, and I love it because it's this nested. It's an acronym within an acronym. <laughs> <It is. laughs> So ADI is Assistance Dogs International. So maybe we should start with you telling us what Assistance Dogs International is before we get on to what the breeding cooperative. Okay, good point. Because that's right. That is would be the good place to start. So Assistance Dogs International is um, a worldwide accreditation program. 
And through uh, that accreditation program, they provide uh, quality control um, for persons with disabilities who are looking to um, get a dog to assist them. And um, they provide education to their members. It's kind of like um, your licensing or regulation board. And then within that ADI, uh, there are three chapters. There's ADI North America, um, and then there's ADI Europe and ADI Oceania. And ADI North America is, um, the, is what the ABC, so ABC is actually ADI North America Breeding Cooperative. And we are- That was too many letters though, huh? Way too many letters. And it is a program, it's a membership-based program that's offered to ADI North American members. Perfect. So why, why was it that there was a need for a breeding cooperative? Well, Maybe that's the way to start rather than defining a breeding cooperative, because I suspect that if you talk about what the need was for it, then we can slide into what it actually does. Yeah, I think either way is fine. Um, I will say that over decades, really, within ADI, both in the North American chapter and then internationally, when people got together at conferences and workshops, there was just this conversation kind of over and over again. Boy, if we could pool our resources, what if we um, did this together? How could we uh, help improve the type of dog that we're looking for in the assistance dog field and the quantity and get them to everybody? And I would kind of think over the years, um, people would get so inspired with these great ideas, but then whether it was politics or egos or just um, the logistics that got in the way, it would kind of fizzle out. And in addition, there was um, maybe the bigger schools who had more resources and more experience. Um, you know, maybe their voices were louder. And so then how did the smaller schools, um, maybe even smaller schools who didn't even have breeding programs, like how did they get a seat at the table? You know, they, they wanted to see improvement. They wanted to contribute. So how did they get that seat? When you say see seat? improvement, by the way, I just, that's, I, improvement is a bit of um, assistance dog jargon, I think. I'm ah. not sure how much other people understand that, but you're specifically talking about improving the lines of dogs in the direction that you want to go. Yeah, kind of, you could kind of break it down probably into like three facets, like one, predictability and numbers, just yeah. that, you know, how do you get? the number of trainees you need on a predictable schedule. And then you have improvement in the um, percent of dogs who qualify to go on to this type of work. And then within that subset of the dogs who do qualify, how do you even improve the quality of those dogs even further? And the percent of dogs who qualify, we covered this uh, when I talked to Jane Russenberger, but I'm guessing not everyone listening to you listened to that episode. So the percent of dogs who qualify is lower than some people think. It is. Um, I tend to not, I qualify is very good. I tend to not use um, success so much because I really have had some great experience and come from a background where you're not really aiming for um, how many 
qualify, you're aiming for the quality that qualifies. And so there's a there's quality control, which I think is really positive to not putting um, a huge number, not qualifying a huge number. So we probably see in the industry, I'd say anywhere from about 35 to about 55 percent. Of, percent that, that qualify yeah, and get of, placed, yeah. Yeah, of dogs who were puppies who were nurtured um, through a, a purpose-driven uh, upbringing to then um, be reviewed to go on to be matched with a person with a disability. Yeah, perfect. So, which is which means that it's basically a very, very challenging job for a dog to do, um, which I think we is. all know, but it's just important. And so then we have the, so you're saying we have the larger schools and the smaller schools and the smaller schools want to see improvement. Um, and they want to have a seat at the table talking to the larger schools. So do you remember where you were before I interrupted you? Let's hope so. <laughs> uh, so I think then, you know, how life is those, all those cliches like your grandmother taught you. And then when you get middle age, you realize, oh, they're actually true. <laughs> um, it's not, it's not always how much you know, but it's who you know. Um, so I think it just kind of came together in, in the right um, place in the sense that um, my partner had retired from a leadership role. And so he knew people, you know, he was on a first name basis with the leaders of the guide and the service dog schools, um, not only internationally, but in North America, where we, uh, working with ADI, decided to start with first. So he could get us a seat at the table to say, hey, you know, this idea has been uh, batted around for decades. Would you like to really do something? Let's do it. We're, we're willing to do it. So we've flushed out the foundation, the fundamentals, the governance. We've flushed all that out, um, slideshow after slideshow, meeting uh, after meeting. And then the board at ADI said, yeah, we, we, this is something our members can benefit from, and that's their charter to support the accredited assistance dogs uh, schools. So they said, um, let's do it. And so it was 2013 that the rubber actually hit the road. So what did that look like? <laughs> what did that look like? That looked like um, an operating guideline document that is really big. I don't, I'm going to say 37 pages, but that might, I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty big. That looked like ironing out the governance, uh, having a steering committee of elected representatives so that um, each member school had a representative that they could connect with for their concerns, for their ideas, for any grievances. Um, that looked like having a, a member from the Assistance Dog International Board having a seat at the table so that there was uh, oversight and transparency. Um, that looked like developing the finance um, guidelines and then really setting, spelling out the foundation, the purpose, um, the vision, the values. And then it looked like the logistics, which is kind of the part that I like. I'm real micro and my partner's real macro, um, which makes for some lively debates, <laughs> but also pretty good outcome. 
Um, and so then that was outlining literally the logistics of how to enroll dogs, how to review dogs, how to do mate pairings, how to distribute dogs, how to what guidelines to use when selecting replacement breeders and um, just having those systems all available to the members so they they knew what they were committing to and they knew what to expect. And I'm realizing, as you said, micro versus macro and logistics, that we never actually said what the purpose of the ABC is. And people can probably figure it out from, from the conversation, but it might be useful to take a step back for a minute and say, what is the actual purpose of this, this cooperative that got put together? Uh, it's, a good, it's a good question. This is where it gets a little wordy, and this is where I definitely lose people at cocktail parties. Not that, you know... I'm going to many cocktail parties, frankly. Well, but, and I but if imagine I were, they're not cocktail parties full of dog people. So imagine that's that right now you're at a cocktail party with dog people. Okay, right. Because why else would you go to a cocktail party if right. dog people are <laughs> I don't go to cocktail parties frankly, unless it's dog right. people. <laughs> Agreed. Um, so there's a couple kind of bullet points. It's going to sound a little, uh, I don't know, a little wordy and dull. But um, I would say to help try to put some flesh on the bones one of the primary um, purpose is to increase members' access to purpose-bred dogs. I mean, right there, flat out, to give ABC members um, literal access to puppies, bringing puppies into their program. Um, a second um, kind of factor for the purpose is to employ data-driven estimated breeding values and to apply that systematic selective breeding techniques both to meet the population goals and to improve the actual dog type. And then further, um, the key factor of the purpose is to manage the colony diversity to maintain sustainability. I mean, we really have our eye on being able to partner using the um, human dog partnership to benefit persons with disabilities for what? 200, 300, 500, 800,000 years going forward. Um, you know, God willing, we're all still around then. So maintaining the sustainability is really important. Um, also one of the, the key factors in the purpose is to balance the ebb and flow of the production via a distribution scheme so that a program isn't getting uh, 20 puppies in one month and then um, no puppies for eight months. Um, and we can go into further detail about that with with um, matings, which is real important with managing the broods. And um, also then to provide a really transparent, enriching community for the members where they have access to education and coaching on the real details like repro husbandry, ovulation timing, managing stud dogs, neonatal care and enrichment. They have a they have a safe, open place. Um, to, to access support. That is all very, I think that's all very juicy personally. So <laughs> if you were at a cocktail party with me, I would be like, let's talk more about each of those things. Um, so the first one was access to stock, which is a really big deal for a lot of the people on the Facebook group, which I know that you know, because you are there. Oh, I like that group. Yeah. Um, me too. So so what what are the problems with access to stock that you were that the cooperative was trying to solve that ABC was trying to solve? That a little bit goes back to um, 
doing what we could to give more people a seat at the table. And in, in my opinion, and of course I, I carry bias like every human, um, as I had the opportunity to travel around and work with guide and service dog programs around the world, um, there's a lot of really, really quality working assistance dogs out there. Um, and those dogs um, are mostly the product of very intense selective breeding programs that take, um, in order to have such an intense selective breeding program, you need to have um, quantity and you need to have the resources to support that quantity and be able to have the systems to select replacement breeders accordingly. And not everybody could do that. So again, through this system, we're able to um, bring in stock and then offer through a puppy distribution scheme, um, individual puppies here and there to all members. So that's how they're, they're accessing. A lot of um, assistance dog programs, and I don't mean this any disregard, I, I, it's, it's sometimes hard to find the language to talk about it without sounding um, condescending, um, do use uh, shelter dogs and or uh, purchase dogs from private breeders and or receive donations from private breeders. And um, the percent of those dogs who have the traits that work for an assistance dog um, is pretty low. And in the event, you can still get some marvelous individuals, but you're not really accessing a population. So when you get a marvelous individual, there's, there isn't a way to go back and find, well, what about that individual's litter mates? And what about the other pups that the dam produced? And how can I dive back into the pedigree and uh, focus on these um, other lines? So it's a little more catch as catch can to get the type of dog that the programs need. And so by, by having a cooperative where everyone has um, a seat at the table or, you know, an investment in the crop, people uh, can then have access to dogs with known purpose-bred lineage. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think one of the things that hopefully is obvious, but I'm just going to call it out clearly mm -hmm. is that the larger schools have the resources to maintain larger breeding populations, mm -hmm. but there are smaller schools that don't have the resources to maintain the larger breeding populations. And how are they going to maintain, you know, to continue to improve their lines if they have such a small number of dogs and therefore such a small amount of variation to select on? And it's, you're, you're right. It's the small number and the small variation that um, is limiting it's limiting. And so by being able to pool our resources, a lot of times I think of it as um, like a food co-op. And, um, you know, that old game you used to play in um, elementary school about making soup. And, um, you know, alone, if you're a potato farmer, you just have potato soup. And if you're a corn farmer, you just have corn soup. But if you each bring um, chicken and onions and et cetera, and herbs, then you can make a full rich soup. And so um, that's what I kind of liken it to in, in my mind a lot, that everyone has something to contribute. 
And when we pool those ingredients, we just get a much heartier uh, product. That makes very good sense to me. All right, so then the second point, I think this actually segues beautifully because I think that the second point that you made was about EBVs. Yeah. The second part of yeah. the goal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so again, I will refer listeners to Jane Russenberger's episode, but can you tell us a little bit more about what an estimated breeding value is and why it's important? Oh, I'll try, Jessica, but I will, <laughs> even though I've worked with them for uh, 20 plus years, I still kind of would butcher it. Well, so, I mean, but one thing that you said in, I'm thinking of it in the terms of text, a couple paragraphs ago, um, you were talking about if you get a really marvelous dog from um, a private breeder, then you don't have the ability to go look at that dog's pedigree. Now, of course, you can technically look at the pedigree, uh-huh. right? Like the private breeder will have all the names, but what's missing from that that's important to you? What's missing from that is the um, width of the information. So as you know, and as dog breeders know, uh, what we would maybe refer to as the horizontal information versus the vertical information. So not just the, the sire and the dam, but the littermates of the sire and the dam and all the half siblings of the sire and the dam. And in order to be able to do that, you need to have um, a database, right? We all reach a, a limit in our gray matter where we can only hold so many pedigrees and relations in our heads. Um, so we need a database that tracks the relationships, the links between all those animals, and then a database that um, the information on the dog's phenotype um, and genotype can be recorded and then the links between those types um, can be computed, right? Statistically computed in estimated breeding values and give you the um, a number. And as Jane explained, the number in and of itself isn't um, the significant piece of information. It's the relationship between the numbers, you know, a higher number or a lower number um, to help you build a picture of which lines and family relations are um, going to produce a qualified dog and then ultimately a superior qualified dog. And you need to have the computer system to crunch that all down. Our little brains can't do it. And you don't just keep it all in Google Sheets? No. I do keep I do <laughs> I do keep the puppy distribution on Google Sheets. And if Google ever decided to pull that sheet, we would be in a world of hurt. <laughs> So we were really fortunate, and it is a key, key component of the success of the ADI Breeding Cooperative, is that uh, we do subscribe to the International Working Dog Breeding Association database. And that is the database that we have elected to use. And um, the founders um, of the database have um, are working on the EBVs. We do have accessible EBVs right now for pen hip that uh, I employ on a regular basis. And um, we will uh, be getting uh, actual tangible EBVs for other um, behavior and medical traits as um, time goes on. And so just to tie that up for people, basically what that means, what, what Marina is saying is that you uh, put a dog into the database, you have to test its behavior, uh, which is part of the 
part of the problem is that dogs coming from private breeders aren't going to have the formal behavior test to tell us exactly um, the things that, that you like to test about that will be predictive of whether it's going to do a good job in its, in its job or not. Um, so you put that information and medical information into the database and then it comes back out with a number uh, for each trait and then you can use that number in your mate selection in order to push your population in the direction that you want to go. Yes. Is that a good summary? That is. And then that kind of touches on um, the commitment from the members. One of the factors that's uh, really important to that is that uh, ABC members are required or they make a commitment to enter um, medical diagnoses on all of the puppies that they receive through ABC and to do a, a behavior assessment. And um, similar, it's really fun to link back to Jane Russenberger's podcast. Um, similar to what she talked about, we have uh, elected through the steering committee to use the behavior checklist system. And so through um, various support groups and work groups, each member is uh, educated about how to use it. And then it is um, required, again, that each puppy, so not just the puppies who are going on to be placed to assist a person with a disability, and not just the ones who are being selected into breeding, but each puppy is getting uh, behavior checklists um, completed and entered into the database as they go through the different um, stages of their development. Yeah, and that, which is exactly what you meant by the um, width or breadth yeah. of information. Yeah. Databases are great. I like databases. All right. So then your third, the third part of the goals, am I remembering? Was it about a community? It was, you're really good for remembering these, by the I'm, way. <laughs> I was like rehearsing the first three. As you were saying them, I was rehearsing them in my mind. And then you kept going and I was like, I'm done at three. Right, so the next one I'm going to have to ask. <laughs> she's still talking um, I was like there's more than three the third and I can't really say that they're in any particular order although they certainly are uh, weighted um, but I think the third one I talked about was diversity oh that's right that's right yes for sustainability yes, genetic diversity yeah. in this case right and yeah. talking about sustainability right and so that's and the, I think an important thing to think about is that I mean that's obviously a problem for the small schools right because if right. you have 10 or 20 breeding animals, if that, there's if no that. way. There's no, right, like some of them have like five. So there's no way that you can maintain within that as a closed population for even one or two gener you know, a couple you generations. No, but the can't. large schools have issues with that as well, right? And so they still need to be, even if you have 500 or 800 breeding dogs, you still need to bring in periodically. Yeah, there you go, Jessica. And that's the beauty of it. That's what interests the large programs. Yes. You know, the large programs, and I'm I'm generalizing here, maybe like, well, I've I've got my production down pat. You know? I know I need X number of puppies each year coming in at so many per month. And I've got it nailed. So I don't need a breeding co-op. Um, but the diversity, hmm, I do need to introduce some new lines. And also it helps um, a program with a larger breeding population to have their dogs in use elsewhere because they're going to see how those dogs perform in different environments under different circumstances and get the data on their dogs to feed back into their own 
uh, estimated breeding values and um, population statistics. So that is a big, a big factor. And the, the ABC was super fortunate when we first developed it. Um, we were uh, seeded, for lack of a better word. Again, I kind of go back to that farm co-op and the seed exchange. We were seeded by some uh, very lovely donations, um, by some guide programs, both here and abroad. And so that brought over some novel stock into North America that um, certainly perked up the ears of some of the larger programs. Oh, so that's how you, you pulled some in. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get distracted here because I really I wanted to go through these one by one. But so does the ABC itself own the dogs or do the programs own the dogs and they swap them around um, through the ABC? How does that work? Oh, I love your questions because, and also because you get it back to the back to the <laughs> hypothetical well, um, as cocktail party. You, <laughs> as I told you before we started, I have the uh, ulterior motive of trying to figure out how all this works right. so that I can help other people set them up. Let me touch back on one quick point that I think will kind of help um, listeners get a picture in their mind. Sure. Within the ABC um, Cooperative, there's three categories of membership. Um, There's a foundation member, a host member, and a general member. And as with anything in life, that's always evolving. Maybe there'll be more categories or less categories in the future, but this works really well right now. And a foundation member is one who um, does commit to making a donation. Um, That foundation member does not pay an annual dues and does not participate in puppy distribution. Um, And they were instrumental, those members, to getting the co-op seated, like we're talking about. And then host members are those who can commit to hosting breeding stock, um, literally doing matings, um, whelping and rearing litters. And then the general members um, are those that uh, are raising the puppies for the rest of the cooperative, Um, but at this time they are not hosting any breeding stock. They either don't yet have the experience and the resources to do that, or up to this point, um, don't have a need to do that. And one thing back into the education that's really lovely is that those categories are fluid. Um, So one thing that ABC has provided that's been really lovely is schools who were general members and then say, we're ready, We're, we're ready to do this. Uh, we will support them transitioning to host and teaching them what they need to um, be able to whelp and rear puppies. Um, back to your original question, I know that co-op doesn't own any dogs. All of the dogs are owned by the member schools. So when you received these um, seed dogs, you placed them directly with schools? Correct. Yeah, and, and, and sometimes dogs are enrolled. We use the term enrolled. Um, sometimes dogs are enrolled um, for just a period of time. So, for example, a stud dog maybe is enrolled for three months, um, but he, he does not join the ABC program permanently. And same uh, with a bitch. We had a couple um, schools who enrolled their bitches. Like we had one service school, really lovely. When um, the co-op started, they said, you know what? we're going to take this leap of faith. Like we are all in and they, and they had six broods. So that gives you an example. I would say that's a medium to small size school. 
that was all that all six of theirs they enrolled they said that's it they're all in we'll breed them collectively all their puppies will be distributed and um so that's so that's the definition of being enrolled yes that does it mean that the that the abc is going to tell you how to breed the dog that would be one way of putting it the abc is going to guide you (laughs) guide you Sorry, you, yeah, that was that's probably not the best you way of phrasing the process. it. But they're going to help but, but you yes. with mate selection. They're going to help you with mate selection, yes. and they're going to help you with puppy placement. Yes, yes. And then versus if you, the dog isn't enrolled permanently, but it's it, it's enrolled for. Do you say enrolled for a few years? Is that what you said? <laughs> so this is I'm where the, it's the terminology it's, wrong. It's just semantics, right? But but that's kind of the beauty probably why the operating guidelines is so long is because, uh, you know, you have terms and a glossary of terms so people can understand what we're referring to. Um, we call the dogs who are lifelong members of ABC, we call them allocated. They're, okay. they're allocated. And then the enrolled dogs are just uh, enrolled for a period of time. I see. Okay. All right. And so if I am a small school, and I have six dogs and I uh, enroll them for a year, then what is that gonna, or three years, what's that gonna look like for me? It's gonna be like, how, is, how am I gonna interact with the ABC around those dogs? Okay, I'll tell you, I'll, t- I'll give you a specific and you can see what you think of that. Uh, I've got one just this morning. Before we connected, Jessica, I was doing a um, enrolled mate planning table for a bitch named Maggie literally. And Maggie is owned by an assistance dog school on the West Coast. And Maggie's particularly noteworthy because she was imported. So she was imported from a a long line of guide and service dogs. So that school, bless their heart, they paid all the money to buy and import that bitch. And uh, they pay all the money to support her, you know, to raise her and provide for her care. Uh, but they're small. They don't have any stud dogs on uh, on program. So it's a beautiful uh, win-win. So they contact uh, ABC and they want to enroll her, and which they've done. There's a little place in the database. Click, she's enrolled. And then we will plan her uh, mating together. And by enrolling a brood into ABC, then the school who owns that brood then gets access to all the ABC stud dogs. So that's a boon right there. And they get access to the the network um, of people that, that I can work with to um, help find an appropriate stud dog. And they also get the, the oversight um, and the coaching about ovulation timing, uh, reproductive husbandry, um, whelping, neonatal care, et cetera. And then they also get a credit for enrolling, so they'll get a, a, a puppy, another puppy coming their way. And then when the litter is born, um, as we've talked about that you've touched on, sometimes a, a smaller program, um, having eight from one litter at one time doesn't quite behoove them. Maybe that's gonna be too much of a particular type, uh, maybe too much of a particular breed. Maybe they don't have the resources to find those homes right at that moment. So this way there's shared within the population and the the puppies that go out um, then seed the population within the other members 
And that's how that enrolling school will get puppies coming back to them in the future. At a time when perhaps they need a few more Labrador retrievers, but they don't have any breedings planned right now. So you're shipping around puppies and I'm guessing semen? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Semen and and broods. Broods move too. And that's another really awesome thing. Because it's a, a, a program within the Assistance Dogs International, we know we're working with accredited members. So we know that these members have already proven themselves in their care and welfare um, of the dogs. So we know that ABC is not a regulating body in that way. Um, that's what we rely on the ADI accreditation so that there's the confidence with the members if they enroll a brood, you know, because each dog has a, a, a family. Um, is loved and cared for and snuggled by a person, a real person or or a family. So it's not lightly that we just move dogs around, um, but they have that confidence to know that their quality control with their volunteers, their um, puppy raisers, those uh, families who love those dogs is all on par with each other. Um, So a school may enroll a brood and opt to allow her to travel to another school to either mate or to whelp her litter. So they do, we do move broods probably about eight, eight to 10, maybe a year. Um, Stud dogs, we do put on rotation as well, maybe about four to six a year. And then we do ship uh, a lot of chilled semen. And when you, just because you gave me some numbers, how many dogs is the cooperative managing in a given year usually. Oh, that's a good one. I think we've got 48 to 50 broods right now and maybe 10 studs. And then there's probably about 300 active puppies being raised right now. So it's not itself really a sustainable diverse population, but because it's being moved between other populations, it maintains diversity that way. Yes, and we can dip into other um, right. other programs. So it's very much not a closed. Here's an example. Oh, you might love this one. So um, there is a stud dog named Prague, which is really kind of fun that he's named Prague and he is now in Europe. Um, so there's a stud dog named Prague, a yellow Labrador stud dog. And what's really cool about this is Prague is enrolled in ABC. His owner, um, a service dog school on the East Coast, they enrolled him out of the the goodness of their heart and the long-term vision. And we um, have loaned him to a fellow ADI member in Europe. And he is there now. He is there, quite frankly, much longer than expected due to COVID. He went last, uh, late last fall, and he was going to come back probably about March 30th. Um, so he has not come back because of COVID, because um, his custodian, so again, real person, real family, loves this dog. Uh, he is their pet uh, on behalf of being a stud dog for a service dog school. They want to go over and get him, and they can't um, because of COVID. Anyway, so while he's there, we're going to make hay. Uh, see, I don't even know that old cliche. Make hay while the sun shines? Or make <laughs> lemon out of lemonade? Something like that. I think that. it's, yeah. And he's going to service additional broods with additional, from additional service dog schools in Europe. And a select puppy from each of those litters 
will come back to North America. So that's, cool. that's where you go where you're, you're getting the diversity. So why did you send him rather than just uh, his genetic material? It's a good question too. The school that we partnered with in Europe um, prefers to have the live dog. And I have found over the years of doing this work, as long as it's safe and everyone is emotionally invested, the impact of sending a live dog is so paramount. Um, you know, chilled semen just does not make a good photo op. And <laughs> Well, it depends on who you are. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's true. Um, but something about having the live dog and building those connections between the custodial family, the school who enrolled the dog, the school who's hosting the dog, really goes a long way for nurturing people to get excited and um, committed. And so that's why we opted. Um, they also, the school who was interested in receiving him, they wanted to make the investment and send um, a trainer and a breeding manager over here to North America and visit the school and develop again those personal connections before they uh, walked on the plane with him and took him back over to Europe. So that's why, and sometimes, you know also, um, sometimes it's, well, it is more expensive to do shift matings. You know, it, it, it's, it's very, it doesn't cost anything to do a live mating. I'm a little wear and tear on your knees, but um, other than that, it doesn't really cost anything. So that's a, that's a factor also. While he's there on behalf of the ADI, he will have semen frozen and stored. So talking about making those connections, should be a beautiful segue into the one of your other goals but before we get there i got so curious when you're talking about people making um getting credits and mm -hmm. getting you know oh there will they get a brood later will they get a puppy later so how does that work if i again in the the six dog school and i i wanted a, a dog i need another dog and i want to go to the abc to get it can i buy one do I need to do this trade where I have to have one and breed it first? What does a credit mean? Okay, okay. This this is good. This is good. A little rough, but good. Am I um, too detailed? <laughs> no, I see. I love the detail. It just would uh, be interesting what the uh, listeners think. Um, no, you cannot buy a dog uh, from ABC. Um, once again, because ABC doesn't own any dogs. Right. Right. So that that's one. Um, and two, because it's really about um, partnership and mutual collaboration. So as the neutral facilitator is the role that I play, um, I, with collaboration in mind, I wouldn't want to sell you a dog, even if I could, because that would be the end of our relationship. Um, we would want a way that we were then partners together long term. Um, so the way to work with this population of dog would be that you would join ABC as a member. Um, in which, again, we talked about you would, you would be a school who was already accredited by ADI, and that would make you eligible for membership. Uh, membership is renewed annually. So that's a beautiful thing, because if it doesn't work for you, you don't renew. Um, so that's a really, uh, that's a good system, I think. So back to 
this idea of building community, which again, you came to. So it sounds like building community is a really important part. Having relationships between mm -hmm. people is a really important part of what the ABC does. It's huge. I think it's huge because, you know, as, as great as any idea is on paper, if you don't have trust and you don't have literally warm fuzzies, why do it? And to be able to connect with people who are, who are passionate and driven uh, in working with dogs in the same capacity and be able to be vulnerable with other people about what your um, risks are, what your downfalls are, et cetera, um, carries a lot of emotional currency. And we are certainly seeing that with during this time of the pandemic, because as with everyone's life, um, nothing is going as planned since um, first week of March. So we have um, literally dogs stranded everywhere across North America. Now, when I say stranded, they're stranded in a loving, enriching home uh, with families, but they're not at this family with the family they were supposed to be with come May, June, July, etc. So people have really had to flex and bend and hold on to puppies, make um, alternative travel, um, have dogs be stranded places. And because there's that emotional currency, they're able to work through that. Um, I do incentivize when I can. Um, for example, um, let's just use a school in the Midwest with pretty good population size, pretty good uh, volunteer resources. So they're getting leaned on pretty hard to hold puppies right now. So they're growing out these puppies and putting all this time and money uh, into training these puppies, the, the bond that they're having with their families, um, only to know that once the borders open more, these puppies are gonna transfer to schools in Canada. Um, but what I'll do is, is after those puppies transfer, if they mature to breeding stock, for example, we'll make sure that they get, say, two puppies from every litter back. We'll, we'll work something out. And then, of course, social media is really positive for us. And I've seen some amazing, heartwarming things where volunteers from around North America connect through social media via the puppies that they fostered and maybe even literally have get-togethers and be like, well, I raised that puppy in Colorado, but then I fostered that puppy in Maryland, and now I'm training that puppy in Florida. And they come together and they share a real mutual um, pride and heartwarming satisfaction of all contributing to that puppy's potential. Oh, that's lovely. I just had a moment of, oh, there's something good about social media after all. Right. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> There's lots of problems with it. <laughs> there is. <laughs> but that's a really nice use of it. That's lovely. All right. So I think we may have covered all of the goals that you listed. We talked to you. There's education. Uh, so there's supporting. And I, I, I'm big on education. Um, so the, another part of that community, I think you were saying, is providing the educational support. So if I'm that small six-dog school and I don't know what to do with the semen that you sent me or when mm -hmm. to do the to do it, or maybe I'm not up on the latest on puppy socialization. So how do you, how do you provide that support? Do you have, um, 
you know, resources, webinars, written things? Do you just people ask? How does it work? We do have a private uh, Facebook group mm. where um, ABC members are connected with other ABC members. And I try to facilitate it. Uh, again, because ABC as a breeding cooperative is not a regulatory body, and it's not our job to set industry standards, those are already set by ADI, um, I, I'm not writing any instruction manual, um, but I'm facilitating for people, connecting people um, directly. You know, it just um, there was a bitch recently uh, who had a C-section, and she was not taking to her puppies. And she was going on, I think she was just in her first 24 hours, uh, but she was really struggling. And when I was contacted, um, rather than me walking through my particular way that I would handle that, I said, hey, how about you call this person at this school and this person at this school and ask about nasal oxytocin. And they, they will help guide you. And then what's really great is um, one of the gals uh, shared about um, retaining placental tissue and rubbing on the puppies. And I was like, oh, see, I didn't think of that. Um, so that's, they get connected by posting questions um, or me, uh, if I'm not helping them directly, referring them to other people and making those connections. So it's really a mentorship thing. Yeah, and in a, in a really safe environment. So important. All right. So, and what is your position at the ABC, which is probably something I should have asked at the beginning. It's okay that you, you didn't, because I, <laughs> I don't really have a, um, I don't really have a job title. My, my business partner, who is, again, more on the governance, finance um, type of uh, platform, he calls me the breeding expert. And I say, oh, no, 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 that ship has <laughs> sailed. I may have been a breeding expert 25 years ago, but there's a whole lot of up and coming folks who know way more than I do now. Um, so I, I think when, when ABC was developed, I was called the neutral facilitator. I'll tend to call myself the breeding administrator. Sounds a little, uh, little more definitive than the neutral facilitator, but basically I am the neutral facilitator. I am, I am the one that educates, uh, members and orients members um, about the commitment to ABC, about the benefits of ABC, uh, what needs to be done, and then does the literal nitty gritty. Are we gonna, are we gonna breed to this dog? How are we gonna move this semen here and there? Uh, how many puppies are we gonna assign to which member and when? Um, and then we have, as we've developed, some really super work groups um, that, that uh, facilitate also, like we have a breeding evaluation work group. That's quite, quite, probably four or five people now, because that's how many that's needed to gather the information about all the dogs moving through the program and synthesize it so we can um, access it for uh, reader review. And then a, a data audit um, group of folks that, that literally make sure the data is getting in there and that it's accurate. And That's coaching important. members through that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then some some PR guidance to if we need any assistance with keeping Facebook that friendly place we talked right. about. Right. So that's 
That's my role. That is a very cool job. And you actually get paid to do it. So the ABC has finances to, to manage all of this stuff. Um, right. I don't know how much you would feel comfortable talking about that, but I feel like it's a question that people who are thinking about setting up their own cooperatives may struggle with. Sure. I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Like what are the, what are the costs? And so we're going to be talking probably smaller cooperatives theoretically, so they may not have a paid person to manage it, but what are some of the costs and how do you, how do you manage this? I do get paid. Um, my business partner partner calculated away. I I get about $2 an hour. Oh, good deal. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But this, as we touched on, you know, this is an industry that fuels my soul. So that, the that balance works for me. Um, the is, ABC is uh, membership driven and they do pay, uh, the members pay a membership fee. It's $1,500 a year. And the membership fee is voted on by the steering committee um, annually. And then from that fee, uh, as the managing partners, my partner and I draw a percent of that fee and the rest of it is used for what's called operating reserves that uh, may be necessary. I'll give you a, a quick example uh, without boring you to tears. Um, you're, you you, in your profession are uh, familiar with uh, copper toxicosis in the Labrador. And for an example, when the um, copper toxicosis genotype test became available to your average consumer about, what well, I don't know, four or five years ago, it was decided that it would behoove ABC that we go back and test the colony. So we used operating reserves to go back and test. Um, moving forward, each member is is required to test the dogs, but we were able to use those operating reserves. We've had some travel snafus that we've needed to use the operating reserves. And then we've had some semen freezing uh, partnerships overseas that we've used those operating reserves to collect and uh, freeze the semen in pre- uh, preparation for its export. I see. But for the most part, you would expect the member schools to do the various health testing for their dogs and to pay for the semen freezing and all of that. They do. So they do make a significant financial contribution, as well as just your general husbandry uh, and care for all of the dogs. Yes, each member is paying for that. Yeah. I mean, although theoretically they would be doing that anyway. Right, right. right. Exactly. All right. Cool. So awkward segue into talking about your own breeding situation, which is because I know that you have custodian homes. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about the ABC before we transitioned to talking about custodian homes? Maybe you could tell people where they could go if they wanted to learn more about it. Is there a website? No. Oh, you don't want people to no. know about it? <laughs> uh, since it's it's limited um, to members of Assistance Dogs International, I don't think there would be a big draw um, okay. for the public other than using it maybe to um, generate and brainstorm for ideas how they could use something similar to be applicable to their, sure. their goals and their, their breeding motives. And I think... One of the things to kind of wrap it up is um, it's, it's remained um, responsive and flexible. And I think that that's a key to the success and um, non-judgmental. I really think having 
neutral oversight is key. You know, I, I, I don't have any particular skin in the game for particular lines of dogs. So I'm not trying to promote or demote any, uh, just looking at the, the data that's presented um, and recognizing that everyone is an expert in their field. So sometimes people get bogged down, like how can one person, uh, a breeding administrator be selective replacement stock? Am I traveling all over looking at all these dogs? Uh, no, because I don't need to, because I, I am working with people who are experts in their own right. So how they um, describe uh, the dog is, is all that we need to make um, informed breeding decisions. And then again, we do use the, the breeding checklist system that uh, Jane talked about in her podcast in much more detail. And back to the use of the database as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we do, we do also uh, keep an eye on confirmation. So we are using photos. So that would probably be the most, um, oh, I don't know the right word, kind of narrow-minded in most cases, that's me looking reviewing the photos, but, but they've already gone through several sets of eyes to even get to me. Right. So you have the data at your disposal and you're able to analyze that and pull together and make breeding recommendations based on that without having to be hands-on with the dogs. Be hands-on. Yeah. Even though everyone who, who adores, um, structure and confirmation, uh, knows that putting your hand, there's nothing beats putting your hands on a dog, but you can only beat so many places at once. You can, and you can, and you can contact the people who have had their hands on the dogs, as you said, and, and talk to them about it through the wonders of social media. Mm-hmm. All right. So tell us about your own breeding program. Oh, well that pales in comparison. Let me tell you. Sure. It's a very so different thing. I breed as a, as a hobby because I, um, I love uh, rearing puppies and neonatal enrichment. Um, so I have a very small scale breeding program and, and I donate as many puppies as I can afford, which is usually uh, 20, 25% of a litter. Like it's not much as, as y'all know, it costs a lot of money to raise dogs. Um, I do use custodial homes. I wouldn't quite yet call it a cooperative. I mean, I do um, work really closely with a mentor of mine uh, in Australia. Uh, but as you know, moving moving dogs into Australia is extremely expensive and very time consuming. Uh, for me, lucky me, it's easy to receive them into North America. Um, and then I, I do partner with acquaintances to place uh, puppies into their home so they can raise and love uh, and have a pet dog that then I will look at down the road for breeding potential and either um, bring back home to my place to whelp a litter or partner with them to have the litter, have them raise the litter if that's something that they're motivated and interested in and have the ability to do. So then I presume you'd be providing them with support for all of the information that one needs to absorb to properly whelp and praise and socialize. I do. I do. I, I do that by either uh, maintaining ownership of the individual dogs myself, or I have very, very selective uh, co-ownership relationships. So you have dogs who you consider yourself the sole owner of, but they're spending their whole lives in somebody else's house, basically, unless they maybe come back to you for whelping. I do. 
that's interesting. So how do you, and how do you manage expenses for that dog? So there's, and there's two kinds of expenses, right? There's the sort of av- the normal everyday feeding. Then there's, we'll say three kinds. Then there's right. um, surprise veterinary issues. And then there's all that health testing. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's not a science. I'll tell you that. I don't, don't, don't have a 37 page operating guidelines for this. Um, first off, I'm very selective about who I do this with. Um, the uh, custodial home pays for all the routine care um, because they that's their pet. They, they have that pet um, at no cost to them. So they pay for that care. They would pay for the out of the ordinary veterinary expenses as well as a pet custodian, um, unless they were breeding related. Like, uh, oh, we did have a sticky one recently. Um, where we uh, we had a bitch that was had a spay complication, you know, not something you really see that often uh, in modern medicine, um, but she did, and so I paid for those expenses. Um, the custodian family is also extremely generous, and uh, I think we sh- we split them. I think I paid for her spay, and then we split the cost of the. Um, follow-up emergency aftercare when she was um, bleeding out. And then I pay for all the breeding, like all the breeding clearances and anything related to actual mating. But the home, I imagine, has to do the work of taking the dog to the veterinarian to get the the clearances, x-rays or whatever. Yeah, it depends where they live and what they want to do. I'm happy to go and get the dog and do it or have her come to me. Um, and really, I work on each one on an individual case. You know, for me, it works on a small scale because uh, I want every dog to have a family. And I'm just a regular gal. You know, I, I, I live in the woods, so I'm able to um, have an amazing recreational lifestyle with my dogs. Um, but they're all my pet dogs. I don't have any kennels. I don't, I don't have any... Um, outbuilding or anything like that. We're just regular family dogs. And I want every dog to have that family. And so this is the way that I can kind of look at the options within a litter and make sure by my standards, I'm selecting the best representative from that litter to consider breeding. And then also if I get a great opportunity through a different partnership or mentorship to receive a puppy um, that really I should look at for future breeding, but I can't afford to bring her into my home right now that I might place her in a custodial relationship. And then I also, um, when I donate puppies to assistance dog schools, I do that with a, um, a breeding agreement. So that, so I'm really fortunate that way. So I donate the dog to them. Um, but I do hold on to her kennel club registration and I do hold on to her breeding rights so that if she or he, um, becomes breeding quality down the road, uh, we breed in partnership. And then I do have the option of retaining uh, one or two, depending on litter size puppies, back into my program. So they could place the dog in a working home, in which case you would lose the chance to breed that dog. But if they judge that the dog is a breeder for them, then you get to work with them on. Yes. You would work with them to select the mate as well, or would you only have access to some of the puppies? to select the mate as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. So that works out 
really, really. Yeah, tough. something I imagine people trust you to do because of who you are, and maybe not an option for, I hope, for any I hope reader. So. <laughs> right, and because we have again going back to relationships, and and I try to try to do that by being, you know, open minded. Like I'll I'll tell you uh, real quick a story. Um, a female who I donated to a program on the East Coast and uh, matured to be breeding quality, and we were all set, and I mean all set. There was a dog who was an import who I'd had my eye on for years, and we were all set, and we got semen from this dog, and I was so stoked. And um, the gal who manages the little bitch called me up and said, semen's crap, it's crap. And we were... um, Day five, or we might have been day six um, post-LH rise. So we both agreed, well, she's got to get semen in her, poor little filly. So um, I asked, well, what what works best for you? What is the best thing for you? And they said, well, the semen's really bad, and we really don't want to invest in dual sire testing and we really would like to see kick it up a few notches on initiative in this bitch. We'd really like to place a working Labrador over her. And I said, absolutely. That's what's going to benefit your program best. Let's do it. And just to remind people, this would be a golden retriever bitch. Right. As a purebred yes. golden breeder, I'm like, Ooh, there goes that. Um, but but I think that that kind of those kind of relationships are what makes it work. Um, and interesting, we didn't talk about crossbreeding and all that. That's a whole other thing within the uh, breeding co-op. Oh, that happens within the ABC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We love our crossbreeds. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, I think it's, it's not as glamorous, you know, as so many of the crossbreeds that I see and some of the really great ideas that people are doing for um, breed preservation and breed enrichment. Um, we mostly work with the Labrador Golden crossbreed. So again, not glamorous, but boy, I'll tell you, tried and true. There is nothing like those Labrador golden crossbreeds. What do you like about them? Oh, they just, it's not me. It's not me, Jessica. It's <laughs> what do what other people the, like about yeah, them? <laughs> the, no, I mean, I like them too, but I'm saying it's not my bias. It's that those, those dogs work. Um, they uh, just numerically, numerically, you're usually looking at about 60 to 68% of those dogs go out working. And um, because you, you get that um, beautiful stoicism that comes with a service-bred Labrador, that resiliency, um, and then you just put in a little bit of that sensitivity of the golden and you get a little more emotional engagement and um, a little more uh, physical compliance. And it just makes for a lovely... Cross. And then, of course, the coat is super, super easy care. Uh, people who love Goldens love a golden coat, but it requires quite a bit more care than a Labrador coat. Yes. And for those who don't know, a golden lab cross would have the Labrador coat. Correct. The short coat is dominant. Yes, they are. Although I, I knew one once and it was, I mean, he looked just like a lab. It was funny, but um, he was just a little bit blurred around the edges. Blurred. He's blurred. That's an excellent... <laughs> uh, Yep. So, so in that he clearly had a short coat and you think he was a lab, but knowing that there was golden in there, you could see a little tuftiness. Yep. A softness. And they're also, their features are a little rounded. Their ears are longer, um, more like a golden. And, 
And of course, then there gets into the whole segue of the crossbreeding. We do multiple generations of crossbreeding and breed back into um, each of the breeds for different benefits. And the overall, the, the golden does tend to have greater fecundity. She's pretty consistent with that. You know, she'll carry larger litter sizes, um, uh, very good mothering, very good, uh, usually very easy whelpers, good lactation. So she helps the Labrador out with that. Um, and then we'll, depending on the direction we want to go, either breed back into the golden lines or to the uh, Labrador lines. And then you can get your coat back, if you desire that, of the golden uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, in, the, in the next generation, I would think, if you bred back to a golden. Mm -hmm. Nice. All right, so, so for your, there's a couple questions I wanted to ask about your, um, the homes that you put your puppies in. How many puppies do you have out in? custodial homes right now for myself yeah oh 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 well tell me on the order of magnet is it like 12 yeah. yeah so like around yeah. that okay and how many of those do you think you're likely to end up breeding to oh two? i ask really hard questions too maybe yeah. two yeah maybe three yeah, so that makes a lot of sense to me, right? That it's really useful to have the larger number of dogs out there with the knowledge that you may not use all of them, but it's really hard to know at eight weeks. Yeah, so then I can be more selective because it's not right there under my feet. I can be more selective. And when I'm driving home, just as a hypothetical, after visiting with the puppy and the family, I can really turn the screws and just like, is this really what I want to breed and what I continue with. And um, I also, and this may, may be a weakness or a strength, you know, the beautiful complexity of the human condition. I don't know if I could ever raise a dog and move him or her on personally. Um, I haven't been able to yet. Um, so this helps me in that situation, you know, that I'm not raising a dog and looking at him or her eight, nine, 10, 12 months down the road going, you know what? It's not really breeding potential. Um, now what do I do with her? By doing it this way, um, she has her own family and then the dogs who I am raising myself, if they turn out to not be breeding potential, that's okay, they get to stay. Yeah, and it means you can have just your air happy household of three if that's what you <laughs> want. I One person on the podcast had 15 and I think, you know, more power to her if that's what you want, but if you want three, which is three is my number as well, um, I say with my husband around the corner, who's you over, one time he overheard me at one point talking to someone and I, I, I forget if I was recording or not, but he yelled from the other room, no more dogs. So three is our number. Um, so isn't that a, that's a real factor. That's a real factor with a partner. It's, it's a real factor. And, and wouldn't it be interesting if you, if your partner was, a, was dog crazy and I do yeah. see those partnerships in different times, <laughs> and I'm like, crazy, right? <laughs> wow, what would that be like? Yeah. Yeah, we, we, I, I am looking at bringing a puppy in in the near future, and I keep checking in with my partner, and he keeps just going, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so we're okay. <laughs> I felt very lucky that it was okay for me to bring in the third, but I'm pretty sure a fourth would not be okay. Yeah. But yeah, I think the, the dual dog families, from what I can tell mostly, they each have their own number. So it's like one will have three and one will have five, but then there's eight. I think you're right. So how do you assess these puppies? You say you go visit them and you talk to the owners? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then if it gets to the point where I would start to do um, pre-breeding clearances. So I'd start to gather that data also. Um, but the, the, you know, behavior to me um, is everything. Um, I don't have background in shelter medicine. Um, I do have background in training um, non-assistance dogs. So I, I, I feel real fortunate with that. I used to work for a business called Canine Corrections. And these uh, the primary clients were the dogs from the county who had um, a dangerous dog citation. And then we would work with those dogs and then need to go back. Um, I, was a, I was a lowly apprentice. So I didn't go to court on behalf of these dogs, but the owner would then go to court and present about um, our recommendation for the dog uh, continuing in society. So I so I have some experience training a wide variety of types of dogs. And so a dog that you can live with um, and want to live with and can safely be a member of society is so key to me. So that's certainly the first criteria in any case. Um, whether I would continue to look at a dog as a potential breeder. And, and I'm doing the test right there, the test by the fact that these pups are being raised by pet homes. They're not trainers. They're not behaviorists. Um, they've got kids. They've got jobs. They've got people leaving gates open. They've got, they're dropping sandwiches on the ground. They're going to Little League games. Right there is the uh, behavior assessment for me. So you basically talk to the owners and see if they're happy. Yeah, and I talk to them, you know, frequently. They're part of my uh, my posse. Yeah, well, it comes down to as well being selective about who, who you place the dogs with, and it sounds like you're often preferring to place them with people that are either friends or that you would want to be friends with. They're quite yeah, super small scale, Jessica. I'm I breed a litter a year, so super small yeah, scale. Yeah, but I think that. Um, there's a lot of people out there who breed a litter a year that this approach might be useful for. You have to it. You have to be willing to walk away. And I told myself the very first puppy I ever placed, uh, I flew over to France, bought a puppy. Big deal. A lot of time and money, a lot of emotional investment, and handed her over to someone. And I told myself you have to, in order for this to work and to maintain relationships and to honor the integrity of each person you're working with, you have to be able to walk away. And that that puppy is, the relationship is first and the puppy is secondary. Interesting, and that's worked out well for you? It has, and I've had to walk away from a few, and I think it's worth it. And what, what causes you mean that you have to walk away because the puppy's not right or because it's not right for the puppy to be bred in that home? It's not. Well, if the puppy's not right, that's, that's not so bad, right? That working, although that's, that's crushing for families. I mean, they, they go into this because they want to be a part of something else, something bigger. They want to see that dog be able to produce puppies that can be donated to service dog programs. That's what they want to see. So when that doesn't happen, uh, it's really disappointing and it's sad, but we're all in it together, right? We're all hugging and crying together. Um, what, what cannot work is if you have a person that for whatever reason, usually um, uh, intense sensitivities that then somehow 
crosses a threshold that thinks a dog shouldn't be bred um, for their own well-being or the time away or, you know, I, I made the mistake once um, of, of having, I like to involve people and I really like to partner. And I had someone come um, to help me for a breeding literally and the act of the the breeding you know the the bitch kind of squealed darted away a little bit and she just went oh my god and almost crumpled on the ground and it's like oh okay this is this is too much um for your for for a pet family to kind of to kind of see that and um I had one young, lovely young female who had some excessive mammary development whenever she was in season, and that just it it pushed the family custodian over the edge. So I I let that I let that bitch. Uh, well, she wasn't a bitch yet; she hadn't reproduced. I let that female go, as a pet. Those are great stories. I think that's things that I wouldn't have thought of, but it makes a lot of sense that those are things that are going to come up if you're placing puppies with custodial families. I was also interested to hear that you were saying that one of the incentives for the families is that they want to help produce dogs to be donated to assistance dog programs. And a lot of the people that I talk to on the Facebook group are people who are breeding for, um, for other things. Mm -hmm. um, but often like one of the large groups that we talk to are people who are just breeding dogs for pets. And so I, it makes me wonder if it would be challenging them for them to find potential custodial homes without that incentive of you're going to be you're going to be doing this great thing to help someone who really needs a, a dog to help them get through life as opposed to you're going to help produce more great pets for people but maybe that's just a messaging thing that we need to figure out how to tackle that there's multiple jobs that dogs do and they're all important jobs yeah i'm not sure i don't have experience with that i i would think maybe with your working homes um, or performance homes, you would have fellow like-minded acquaintances who wanted to really contribute to having more dogs with that, those working abilities and might be motivated to do that. And then the pet part, yeah, that's a, that is a tough one. Um, certainly an altruistic motivation just to see more nice pets out there. And then, and then I think it does, you do have folks who are um, entering into the dog world and, and want to learn about um, conformation, structure, movement, what makes different grades of dogs um, and might really be motivated to be like, hey, I got the, you know, first pick puppy from a litter, the, the one who looked at eight weeks, like he or she had the special all-rounded qualities to be selected as a replacement breeder. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's one to ponder. It is. It's maybe something that not so many people have grappled with yet. So maybe a question for the future. Yeah. And, and it's certainly, I think one of the things we all recognize is, um, while reproduction, uh, is, pregnancy is not a disease by any stretch of the imagination, it does come with risk. So, so that, that's a factor too. And for me, that's a factor. If I'm whelping out, one of my own girls, um, that's something that I, I put that girl in position, just me, myself, and I. And if I'm whelping out a, a girl who's in custodial relationship, oh yeah, that's weighing on me. 
oh yeah, that's weighing on me. Like, oh, just let this go well. Let this go well. I feel like the theme in this whole conversation has been about relationships and that's, and, and, and respecting the other person's buy-in to the relationship and what they bring to the relationship and that it's not all about the breeder, but it's also about the, the other home or the other member of the co-op, the other breeder, that we're all in this together, working together, and we have to really think about what the other person's experience is. Yeah, and in, and enjoying it. I mean, we know that there there is, it is so fraught. You take the emotionality of dogs, it's so fraught with pitfalls. And so you've got to have a, a foundation of mutual respect and, and honesty to weather those pitfalls. Yeah, I think for sure. All right, this has been amazing. I really appreciate your time. I've, I feel like I've sucked a lot out of your brain and we've run along as a result, but I couldn't help myself because it was also interesting. So thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing. It's, it's amazing. So you're very welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I hope we get to where I want us to get to. We'll see. It's a long road. All right. Thanks, Marina. Thank you. Hey friends, some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing the podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice, and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Sarah Espinoza Socal. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the Functional Dog Collaborative, check out functionalbreeding.org. Enjoy your dogs. Enjoy your dogs.